you're listening to Birds, Bees, and Teas, a sexuality education and storytelling podcast hosted by yours truly, Miss Nia Angie Africana Sutton. All right, welcome back, teasers, to season three of Birds, Bees, and Teas. Today, I have a very, very wonderful episode for y'all, and it is entitled Women's Business because it's Women's History Month, and this is the time to celebrate us and also to bring light to um, our business, our health, our wealth, um, our bodies, and all of the beautiful things that make us who we are. Um, so I have the pleasure of having Dr. Natasha Ramsey here with me, AKA Tasha, AKA the gorgeous doc, um, a board certified pediatrician in training to become an adolescent medicine specialist. That means that she cares for young people between the ages of 11 and 25 and help them with problems related to sexual health, mental health, and everything in between. She is the founder of Gorgeous Doc, a lifestyle and wellness brand, and Gorgeous Sex Ed, a sexual health organization dedicated to inclusivity and sex positivity. Teasers, please give a very warm welcome to Dr. Natasha. Woo! Everyone, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much for being here. Um, we are so excited and we're going to talk about so many wonderful things today. So I hope um, that y'all are ready to um, sip all this sexual health teas. <laughs> all right, so Dr. Natasha, can you tell us more about yourself? Yes, of course. Um, so it all started when I was born. Just kidding. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm from, so I, my family's from the Caribbean. So. Um, my family's from Jamaica, and I was born and raised in Jersey, so I'm a Jersey girl, but okay. I did all of my medical training in New York, so I feel like a New Yorker. And then I did a, a little bit of a detour and was in D.C. for two years, and then I made my way back to New York because D.C. is not like New York. I know. Ooh, okay, oh, that's shade. <laughs> that's shade up at all. Oh, uh, I'm sorry for the shade, but it's true. Um, so yeah, so I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do sexual health um, as like a career. I was a teen writer for a magazine called Sex, Etc. When I was when I was in high school, and that just like opened my eyes to like this world of like sexual health and like how there were disparities across the country and how that had impacts for like adolescents and young people's lives and, you know, STD rates, pregnancy rates, things like that. And so when I got to college, I was like, I'm going to do public health. Like, I'm going to change this. We got to fix this. It's a problem. And then I had lots of friends who were pre-med and they were all um, doing pursuing medicine. And I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. And I was like, but I don't know anybody who's done it. Like no one in my family has even gone to college. Like it seems impossible, but I had really good mentorship and they kind of pushed me along. And so when I got to medicine, I knew that medicine within medicine, I had to continue my goal of trying to improve sexual health. And the best way to do that is to work with teens because who's having more sex than teens? Old people, that's it. So <laughs> I was like, I just, this is, this is my calling. This is what I need to do. The other thing is I'm very, <clears throat> um, I am very uh, committed to global health. And so I've not only worked with teens here in the US, but also with teens in other countries like in Kenya and in South America. So 
for me, this is like a lifelong goal. Um, this is my passion. This is what I do. And this is how Gorgeous Doc also started because initially I was doing a blog, just talking about my experiences being a black woman in medicine. And then I was like, why don't I use my platform to continue to raise awareness around sexual health specifically for, for women of color and people who are marginalized and often are not in the conversation. And so then I started Gorgeous Doc and Gorgeous Sex Ed as it is and exists now. So I don't know if that answered the question, but that's who I am. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Like, oh gosh, that was, that was, I learned so much about you just in that like quick moment. And um, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I also like started my career in sexual health as a teenager. So um, I just love to like meet other people who, whose peer education, you know, like led them to this field because like teens are so like uh, underrepresented and it's just, I, I use my own story and stories like yours to, you know, prove to people why we need to listen to teens and talk to teens and let them lead the way because like, you know, these are the, the future doctors who are going to be caring for your teens when they um, become kids. So um, thank you so much for that. Um, I love that so much. And I um, didn't, I also didn't know that you um, had opportunities to work with um, teens in Kenya and um, outside of the U.S. So that's amazing. That's so amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so I know that from listening to um, different um, engagements, speaking engagements that you've um, been a part of and following your posts um, on your Instagram at gorgeous doc at gorgeous sex ed, um, that you practice anti-racism in medicine. So can you tell us what that means and um, like what that looks like and why it's important and how um, like we can identify practitioners who are anti-racist? I wish y'all could see my face on this podcast. When I tell y'all racism is so rampant in medicine, it is not even funny. And I didn't know that until I was in it. Like when I, like I said, I going into medicine, I was like, I just want to change the world, like help people. And then mm -hmm. I got to medical school and I was like, oh, it's only six of us. Where everybody else? I went to, I went to undergrad at Rutgers, shout out to all the Rutgers people in the building. Um, and we had a very, even though it was a predominantly white institution, we had our black community there. We had our people. And so when I got to under my, um, when I got to, I went to NYU for med school. When I got there, I was like, where is, where are the black people? I felt very isolated. That was the first time in my life that I've really felt othered. Um, and it wasn't, it was, mm -hmm. it was not because like black students weren't smart enough to get in. It was because of lots of structural obstacles and that were in the actual admission process and in the school. Absolutely. So at that point, that's when I got really interested in racism and how it infiltrated the medical system because I'm like, we're working at some of the most vulnerable hospitals in the country. We work rotated out of Bellevue Hospital, which is the first public hospital in the entire country. And we're serving people who have absolutely nothing. And the people who are working there are people who don't understand the population at all. And I was like, how is this a thing? So then I started to question what's going on with the system. And as I started to learn more, I realized that this is the way that medical, the medical system is set up. It is set up to create barriers so that people of color are not able to infiltrate and get in. And that, this yeah. is why we have health disparities and differences and different types of health issues, because 
a black woman goes to the emergency room and is having pain and they're like, oh, she's just being dramatic. And a white woman comes and she gets flooded with oxy or you know whatever um, opioids. So it's the, the, the dichotomy is really crazy. So yeah, so that's what initially opened my eyes to the racism within the structure of the admissions process. But then I realized that there was also racism embedded into the teaching and the things that we were learning. So I would have teachers who would say flippant things like, oh, black people have high blood pressure, like things like that. It's like, no, black people have high blood pressure because of stru structural and systematic racism. Yes. <laughs> like it's not intrinsic to a black person to have high, high blood pressure. It is because of the circumstances and historical context and access to care and access to food and healthy vegetables, access to be able to exercise that leads to hypertension. You can't just say that. So okay. then I started to question everything they were telling me. And the way that I started to learn more is I started to read. Mm -hmm. I started to read on my own. So what I encourage everyone to do, no matter what field you're in, look at it from a racist lens and start to do your own research. Where's the data that supports whatever it is they're telling you is true, right? You work in education and tell you, oh, black students this, black students that. Is that true? Or is that what they tell you? So you need to do your own research. So I started doing my own research and I'm looking over here because I have a bookshelf book. Yes. And I have so many books that I started reading. There's a book about Henrietta Lacks, The Moral Life, mm -hmm. A Mortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. There's a book called Medical Apartheid. There's a book called Killing the Black Body. Um, there's lots and lots of books related to medical mishaps and um i'm a very huge proponent of reproductive justice so reproductive injustices that have happened throughout history and currently um so i that is how i and then i i take that information i put it together and i create instagram posts and i blatantly talk about it at any moment that i get and with all the students that I work with and with all the attendings that I work with so that everyone knows because it needs to be something that we talk about. Um, it's often swept under the rug. And like I said, people make these blatant statements. Black people have higher rates of blank and without connecting how we got there. So you have to do your own research and you have to read. How do you find a practitioner who is anti-racist? It is very difficult. It is very hard. Um, but number one, I mean, not, you can't assume that every person of color, every black person is anti-racist, but for the most part, <laughs> it's a pretty good proxy. Okay. So I would recommend finding you a black practitioner. All, my whole team is black. My dentist is black. My therapist is black. Yes. My primary care doctor is black. My everybody's black. So you just have to find the find your um, find your people. There's apps that help you kind of sort sort doctors so like there's an app called ZocDoc that I use to find my doctors and you can see what they look like mm -hmm. you can see the reviews about them there's also um, a health a app called health in her hue <clears throat> um, I know some of the people that started and founded this website and you can find black doctors you can sort it by where you live um, what kind of doctor and it's a bank of like different black doctors across the country and then for therapy or other services like that i use psychology today and once again you can sort it by what the person looks like and also what population they serve do they serve black hispanic do they speak spanish things like that so you can kind of narrow it down to providers who um, care and work in the black community and then um i think at the end of the day, it comes down to the relationship that you have with the, the provider. So even if they are a person of color, that doesn't guarantee that they are not 
that they are practicing anti-racism yeah. because you have to remember the structural the structure that they were trained in is inherently racist mm-hmm. so for instance i had a i had a black doctor back when i was a med student and um she was horrible like i hated her i and I, I was like how is this possible like you're black i'm black you're young hip I'm young, if like mm-hmm. this was supposed to be a thing. I was super mm-hmm. excited to see her. And she was just so rude to me. She walked in the room. She barely made eye contact with me. She sat at the computer. She like logged into the computer. She like asked me these, you know, asked me all these questions. And then she did my exam. And then I was like, I need a referral to cardiology. And she was like, why do you need a referral to cardiology? And I was like, well, I have a cardiac condition that requires me to follow up with cardiology. And she was like, oh, I didn't hear anything on your exam. And I said, well, I know that I have a heart murmur (laughs) because I listened to my own heart and I'm a medical student and I heard it. Mm -hmm. So if I could hear it and you are a trained internal medicine doctor, you should have also heard it. Mm -hmm. And if you would have looked at my chart, you would have seen that I had an echo two years ago and I need a repeat echo. And she was like, oh, fine. And then she gave me the referral. Well, I got to do all of that. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, come on now. You're a person right. of color. I'm a person of color. Like, what happens here? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not mm-hmm. always guaranteed, but for the most part, you have to be able to advocate for your needs and you have to feel like that practitioner hears you. When you say, I'm worried about blank, they don't just say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. They say, okay, tell me why you're worried. What's going on? What, what makes you think that that's something you should be worried about? What is it that you would want us to do today to like help you figure out the you know, next steps? So that's, that's really the best way to figure out um, if you're, you and your doctor are going to have a good relationship, but there's, it's unfortunate that there's not like a great way to tell some, if a doctor is, you know, anti-racist or a a proponent for anti-racism, LGBTQ health providers will often wear pins or other things that symbolize that they're safe, it's a safe space mm-hmm. um, but we don't have anything similar like that for doctors who are believe in anti-racism sometimes you'll see people wear like black lives matter pins or things like that mm-hmm. so that can also be kind of a sign that they're a safe space for people of color okay yes thank you so much for that um you dropped so many gems there but that last piece um is just really important being able to advocate for yourselves and you know that's part of the reason why we have this podcast so that like we can share information and then people can take this information and talk to their healthcare providers about it um and then also like listening to the things that um your healthcare provider says that like gives you indicators of um you know if y'all are going to have a good relationship or not so thank you thank you so much for that all right so um I know you do a lot of work with teens and a lot of us um, were introduced to sex and sexuality and sex education as teens. Um, And so this podcast is all about unlearning, relearning, and continuing learning about um, those things that we learned around sex and sexuality because, or the things that we didn't learn, um, because a lot of it was false or um, just like warped by stigma and shame. Um, So as an adolescent sexual health provider, what are the most common pieces of sexual misinformation among your patients? Yes. Um, Oh my gosh, where do I start? (laughs) 
<laughs> the things that I hear, the things that I see, y'all, it's crazy. And people always will say stuff like, oh, like adolescents shouldn't be learning that. It's too early. You're introducing these topics to them before. And I'm like, do y'all know what these teens are out here doing? Y'all know. They are out here getting it in. They are getting it popping. And so we need to be very, very clear with them and very transparent with them. Now, what I will say is the the thing that I run into a lot is that adolescents don't, sometimes don't understand risk. Um, so what I, what I mean by that is they don't, the definition of sex is very, um, narrow but for them but there are lots of things that people are doing that could put them at risk for stis yeah pregnancy um and then also just other things like emotional you know whatever mm -hmm. um whatever so oftentimes when i'm talking to my adolescents i break it down and i start from the top with sexuality so tell me what are you what is your what are your pronouns and what is your preferred name? And sometimes the adolescents will look at me and be like, no one's ever asked me that before, mm -hmm. you know? Because we have to start there. That's the first and foremost. Tell me about more about your gender identity. How do you identify? And when I ask that question, and I often ask that question without parents in the room, because mm -hmm. sometimes the adolescent is exploring their, gen their sexuality and their, their gender identity, and they don't want them to talk about that in front of their parents. So, I often start there. Then I'll ask them, okay, well, tell me what type of people you're attracted to. And no one ever asks them that either, right? People just ask them, do you have a boyfriend? Are you having sex? Is sexually yeah. active? And it's like, nah, let's start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You might have a boyfriend, but you might be pansexual, right? Right. And I need to provide you with information for everything that you are in, that you need to know, not just mm -hmm. what you tell me. Mm -hmm. So I always ask, tell me about the type of people you're attracted to. Um, and I get all types of answers. Sometimes adolescents, I had this one kid, he was like, I like quiet people. <laughs> I have this one girl, it was the cutest thing. I had this black girl and she goes, I like almost somebody who's funny and like somebody who like buys me nice things, but like also like treats me right. <laughs> she was like 13 and she gave me this whole rundown. Yes, like, uh, she was giving you her um, data at profile. Yes, and she was like, but he has to be smart and like a good student and be a nice person, but like also buy me stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I so I go there. And then I go, this is when we get down to the nitty gritty. And I'm like, all right, well, tell me what kind of things you do with other people. And they'd be like, what you mean? I'd be like, kiss, hug, hold hands, penis in the vagina, penis in the anus, penis in the mouth penis anywhere <laughs> like I'd be having a bad and they'd be looking at me like oh my god what and I'm like I have to ask you because if I don't ask you you're not gonna tell me mm -hmm. and there's something called triple site testing where you test the oral you test the mouth you test the rectum and you just test the genitals so you do that by doing urine or by doing the swab so if I don't ask you how I'm gonna test you if I don't ask you specifically about the body parts that you're using how am I gonna know where to test and sometimes we have to treat, depending on what the infection is that you have, we may have to treat you differently or do more follow-up based on what it is that you have and where you have it. Mm -hmm. So I always ask these questions. And a lot of times adolescents are just like, wow, like no one's ever asked me that before. And I'm like, well, moving forward, they should. 
And if they don't, you should tell them that you're using this part, this body part with this body part with, the, with these type of people so that we know how to test you. Yes. So I would say that is like the most, um, the most common, like kind of like misconception I have from adolescents is that they just don't, they don't think that that's important information to discuss or disclose during their appointments. And they don't realize that they, those other areas that they're engaging in with sex also need to be used. And that that also counts. Like I had an adolescent, she was 14 and she was like, yeah, I'm, I was in a, she was, she also was something else. She was like, yeah, my boyfriend was toxic and we broke up and I'm glad I'm out of that relationship because it's toxic. And then she goes, um, but I'm glad I lose my virginity to him. We only, I only let him put it in my butt. That was it. And I was like, uh, <laughs> did you use yeah. a condom when you put it in your butt? She's like, no. And I was like, do you want to be tested? Because you could still get an STD like that. Mm-hmm. And she just had no idea. Like for her, it didn't count because she didn't use her vagina, right? But she used her mouth, she used her rectum, but it didn't count because it's not sex. So I, I often find that adolescents, young people don't know mm-hmm. um, the different ways that they can get exposed to STIs. And then also they don't realize that STIs are, can be, you could be asymptomatic and you have no symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. So I test everybody. If you come in for a regular checkup, you're getting tested. You haven't gotten tested in three months, you have a new partner, you're getting tested. I test everybody for everything mm-hmm. because I have had people who are like, oh, but I'm in a relationship and been together three years. Like, he wouldn't do that. I'm like, could be asymptomatic and if you didn't get tested and he didn't get tested you don't know what you're starting exactly. at. so let's mm-hmm. just do it today and we'll see and I have patients who they definitely came back positive and they were like so what so <laughs> what, yeah mm-hmm. what does this mean <laughs> you know so mm-hmm. um it happens it definitely happens so I would say STIs is something that a lot of people just don't really understand a yeah. lot of the adolescents just don't quite understand yeah yeah Okay, so what advice could you give to adults who have teens, adolescents, and young people in their lives regarding sexual health and considering um, their like misunderstandings around um, STIs and like sexual practices? So the first thing that adults need to do is realize that they are not the experts. You are not the experts. Be quiet. Like you sitting here trying to teach them something, but you need to listen. A yeah. lot of times, to be honest, a lot of the young people these days, they have a lot of information at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's hard for them to, to dig through it and really analyze what is false and what is not, mm-hmm. you know? And they know how to reach each other best, way better than we do. So if you are really working with youth and you're really trying to serve youth, you need to be quiet. And be you need quiet. to, you have to use social media. You have to. You cannot say you're a youth serving organization and not be on social media. That's where the kids are. Yes. They're all up and down social media. You know how many times I have adolescents come in? I saw on TikTok that you could do such and such and such and such. Is that true? They are all over TikTok and Instagram getting their information. Mm-hmm. So you you have to use social media. You have to like look and see what they're seeing and you have to let them lead. You have to give them, you have to empower them and give them the tools to be able to help their peers. Because when it comes from you, even as a doctor, it comes from me, it's different than it, when it comes from their friends. I could tell them something yeah. so I turn blue. Their friend says it and they're like, oh, okay. They believe it mm-hmm. wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
the most important thing is being quiet, listening to what adolescents have to say, and things things continue to evolve and change, right? And even me asking pronouns, name, you know, pre pre preferred name, things like that. These are things that the adolescents completely understand and do and practice every day. They understand gender and sexuality and sexual fluidity, fluidity and all these things. These are things that we are learning, but these are things that they yes. are living. Yes. living it right yes. now. So if we really want to make an impact, we have to listen to them. Their experience is completely different than what our experience is. We had a lack of information. They have information overload. Mm, it's yes different. it's different it's different yes so absolutely I've I learn every single day every day I learn from my patients I'll say something and I'm like oh I could have said that differently or they teach me how to say something different or they teach me about some new thing that people are doing one of my one of my adolescents that I work very closely with jazz oh my god me and jazz did a few Instagram lives together and we did like a we were keynote speakers for the slam conference couple months ago okay. and they put me on game all the time they'd be like yeah you ain't heard about this virtual thing and I'm like what what is that just <laughs> <laughs> stay giving me the giving me the tea I'm like yes. what you mean what is that <laughs> so you have to listen the, the teens their ears are to the streets that's who you need to talk to <laughs> yes yes Yes, thank you so much for that. I, I love that. Um, but yes, just just be quiet. I, that one is the one. <laughs> um, it's applicable to so many different things. But um, yeah, I really love that. I really love that. And you know, giving space for young people to like speak. Um, and that is just yeah, love that so much. Okay, so let's talk more about these adults. Okay, yeah. it's Women's History Month. And it's important that we use this time to bring light to reproductive anatomy, vaginal health, birth control, sex, and pleasure. So let's get all into that. So we talked about the misinformation among young people and teens. What would you say is the most common piece of sexual misinformation for um, women and femme-identifying folks in their 20s and 30s? When I tell you it's the 20 and 30 year olds that be in my DMs, like, what is that? Wait, how did that? Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm telling you. Because like I said, we are the generation of the no, the no information. We didn't have the information. So now all this stuff is coming out and all of my peers are like, um, can you explain? <laughs> like, what do you mean by that? Like, what is that? Um, so there's a lot of misinformation in our generation because we didn't have the information readily available, right? Like social media was just coming out when we were like going into college and adulthood and, and during our teen years, like we didn't have access to this information the same way that people have it now. So I have a lot of 20 and 30 year olds that just have so many questions about everything like just didn't never learned it certain terms i remember i had a friend <laughs> i was talking about stis um on like a one of these instagram lives i was doing with jazz actually and my friend was like what is trichomonist what's that <laughs> i never heard of that mm -hmm. <laughs> they were so confused they were like trichomonist what's that <laughs> So it's like the same thing, like people don't understand, like there's all these different STIs that you get in all these different ways. 
Um, and then also people don't know their anatomy, right? They're so used to being like, yeah, my, my JJ, like down there. And it's like, but where? Like people will come to the clinic and they're like, like my patients will come in. They'll be like, yeah, I have a bump down there. Where exactly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, is it on the vulva? Is it in the vagina? Like where? <laughs> yeah. So people don't understand their anatomy. And like something even I had to learn on my own was like the structure of the clitoris. I didn't learn that in med school. I can look through all my textbooks in med school, all my reproductive anatomy that I learned for a whole semester, and there is not one diagram of the clitoris, right? So now mm-hmm. you have these grown 20, 30-year-old women, and we're like, what is, what is, what's that? Like, I thought it was just a little thing at the top, and like, mm-hmm. there's so much more information now. So definitely, I would say anatomy, people don't understand. They don't understand that they have three separate holes. They're like, oh, I thought I pee, I'm pee, my pee came from the vagina. And it's like, nope, you have your urethra, you have a vagina, and then you have your anus. Three separate holes. They're not the same. You could pee if you have a tampon in it. Things like that. People just didn't learn. Mm-hmm. You know? So anatomy and definitely risk. Because 20 and 30 year olds are out here too. <laughs> they out here getting popping too. Let's mm-hmm. be real. <laughs> let's be real so it's not just the team <laughs> yes um and I, I just love what you said about like how we don't know so many things like um because of lack of information um and it's like us that are like confused and like are on the learning curve and so much di- there's always like so much discourse around like exposing things to young people and to teens because they're not going to understand it and we have to explain that to them when it's really like you don't know how to explain it and just yeah. be honest about that like you, yeah. you don't know how to explain it because you don't know enough about it yourself but it's not actually confusing to to young people they get it so um yeah, yeah. Love and they're that. watching they're watching porn they're watching other videos online they're mm-hmm. learning about these things they're trying these things mm-hmm. i have had you know adolescents who have tried kink all kinds of things and it's like we can't wait until somebody is an adult to start teaching them about how to be safe right like there's teens who are experimenting with drugs during sex we cannot wait to talk about that until they're older we have to tell them about these things now so that they know how to be safe and so that they can, you know, have, and I think the other thing too is, this is a whole nother rant, but I, the problem with sex ed is that it's so focused on preventing issues, right? Let's prevent STIs, let's prevent pregnancy. How about, let's just make sure that you have a good sex life. How about we just make sure that you don't have trauma and stigma related mm-hmm. to sex? Yeah. Like that is just as important as making sure you don't get an STI. Yes. Right. If I'm over here, like, I don't want you to get STI, let's do all this testing. But we don't talk about the fact that every time you're with your boyfriend, you can't negotiate with him to use a condom. Mm-hmm. What are we even doing? Right. 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 We have to make sure that we're giving you all the tools. It's not just about preventing pregnancy and preventing STIs. Right. It's yes. about, okay, the last time you had sex with your partner, it was too rough and you didn't feel comfortable talking to him about it. And it was painful for you. And you were not able to advocate for yourself. And you also didn't want to use lubrication because you have been taught that it's just supposed to get wet down there automatically, right? No, we need to talk about these things. Your STI test could be negative and you could be on birth control and not be pregnant and all this other stuff. I'm missing this whole other area that you need help with. You know what I'm saying? We have to broaden the conversation. Can't just be about prevention. It has to be about wellness, a happy, healthy sex life, stigma-free, sex positivity, like it has to be all of that. 
Yes. <laughs> no, yes. And thank you so much for going on it because, you know, like, um, uh, that was just like so freeing to hear and just like affirming because, you know, um, I know that, you know, like people, you know, like have criticisms, even my own family members about like me having a sex podcast. Like my mom asked me the other day, um, what does your boyfriend think about what you do? And I'm like, girl, not your business, number one. Because <laughs> he here, ain't he? So, but, um, you know, like people like have opinions and feelings about like people talking about sex in adulthood and like talking about sex casually. But it's more, just, just how you said, it's more than STIs and pregnancy. Um, it's about like having a, sex, a healthy sexual life and the way that our sex and sexuality and sex lives impact and influence every other aspect yes. of our lives. Absolutely. I don't see like why it's so taboo to talk about. Exactly. And like, you know, it impacts every other thing that you do. Like, exactly. so um, yeah, just, just thank you so, so, so very much for that. Yes, that was it. Uh, woo. Okay. Now let me get up off my little um, high horse. <laughs> um, and my next question. So you talked about like, um, the things that you didn't learn in uh, med school. And I just also learned about the full anatomy of the clitoris as well. And there's still so much to, to continue to learn about that. So what is one thing that you would say um, more women should know about our reproductive anatomy and reproductive health in general? Yeah, I would say, um, so the, the important thing to know about reproductive anatomy, all anatomy, is that it all comes from similar structures. And so the clitoris is analogous or the same as like the tip of the penis, the glands of the penis. Yes. And so I think that's important information to know is that the sensation that, you know, people with penises feel is similar to the sensation that someone with a clitoris would feel in that, on that, use, with that same organ. So I think the problem with a lot of, the problem is a lot of people are afraid and ashamed to look at their genitals and you really can't be. You need to know your body. You need to get a mirror, cock that leg up on the toilet and you need to look and you need to know, okay, this is what it looks like. This is what mine looks like. A lot of people see stuff on TV. They see stuff on porn. They see stuff all over the place that tells them what their you know, vulva and their vagina and their anatomy is supposed to look like. But the important thing is you need to know what your anatomy looks like. You definitely need to know the basics, okay? There's the vulva, those are in the outer lips, there's the inner lips, there's the clitoris, there's the urethra, there's the vagina, mm -hmm. there's you know the different parts. But for me, my left labia is longer than my right labia. I have a little mole here, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is about your anatomy, like you need to know that so that you know when something is abnormal. Yes. Um, so what I would recommend is people learning their own anatomy and then also exploring, figuring out what feels good to you. How are you gonna communicate that to a partner if you don't know what feels good to you? So exploring, you know, masturbating. We don't talk about this enough. Yes. Men masturbate all the time and talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. And women, we're taught that that's taboo and we shouldn't talk about it. But we have needs too. So mm -hmm. masturbation, um, the expo, the she expo that we were at a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago, there was a whole discussion about toys, different toys, and 
definitely these are the kind of things that we need to know we need to explore our body and learn of what feels good to us and understand pleasure and understand what's normal what's not normal and what when something changes and when and then also look at your partner's genitals right before you do anything with the partner what do their genitals look like do they have any lumps bumps or anything that you need to be concerned about mm-hmm. a lot of times people t- cut the lights off and they're like i don't even want to look you know but no like y'all about to be intimate you need to look make sure there's not anything abnormal or anything that you're worried about and they should know their body too so they could be like oh yeah yeah, yeah. that's always been there mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, whatever mm-hmm. so i would say that's the most important thing it's knowing your anatomy your own personal anatomy yes and understanding that everybody's is different yes absolutely um that is definitely one thing i you know want um us to be free from like calling our vulvas ugly um you know like because it doesn't look like what this bleached and waxed version looks like um or just like what somebody else's um vulva looks like um so just thank you for that and I've had I've had patients come to the clinic because they thought that their vulva was abnormal like she was brought in by her mom and her dad Mm. something's wrong like her labia (laughs) and I, I know already that her labia is normal, but I, I do her exam and afterwards I'm like, girl, this is you. Like, this is it. Like, you gotta just, you gotta embrace it. This is who you gonna, this is who you are. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> not gonna change. <laughs> and a lot of times people get concerned. They're like, oh, I wanna get surgery, have it removed, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But a lot of surgeons no longer will do labioplasties or other surgery to the area because it can cause complications Mm -hmm. like I said the clitoris is a huge structure that's actually underneath the labia Mm -hmm. so by doing any surgery there you can actually harm the clitoris and and, you know impact sensation things like that so nowadays a lot of people won't even touch it so it is it is what it is it's your absolutely absolutely and I love that you um you know that you are sharing that you like take time to validate their concern like you know okay and then I'm gonna do your exam and like make you feel that you know like what your concern is important um and but I'm gonna tell you what it is at the end of the day Mm -hmm. um and also like reinforcing that um positive body image so um just excellent thank you so much okay so you um just were um getting into this a little bit of like um the different things that can be impact that can impact your um, sexual pleasure in regard to reproductive anatomy and vaginal health. Um, so can you explain more about how those are connected and what advice you could give to the teasers about bringing up concerns um, regarding sexual pleasure to their um, medical professionals? Yes. Oh my God. First of all, like we already said, medical professionals are not going to ask you. They're not going to be like, how's your sex life? Is it good? They're going to be like, do you mm-hmm. want an STI testing today? Are you on birth control? They are not going to ask you, are you enjoying sex? Right? So it's, but it is something that you should feel comfortable bringing up with your doctor, especially if you're seeing a GYN. If you're seeing like an internal medicine doctor or like a family medicine doctor who may not be as, um, you know, uh, savvy with having those discussions, you should still bring it up, but it might be, they might not be able to help you and they refer you to a GYN. 
but definitely you should feel empowered to bring that up with your um, provider. And as an adolescent doctor, I tried my best to bring it up with my patients because like I said, most of the time we're like, do you want STI testing? Like, let's talk about like your risk factor. You know, like we need to like also make sure that people are enjoying sex and that they are not only being safe, but like not having traumatic experiences around their, their sexuality. So yeah, I would say that is the first thing is like feel empowered to be able to talk to your doctor about those things. The second thing is understanding your anatomy. It goes back to that. You need to know what's normal for you and what's not. Is this something that just started happening? Is this something that's always happened, right? And how is it related to your experiences and or how you're engaging in sex and, and who you're engaging in sex with? So for instance, people who have experienced sexual trauma or trauma in general, they may have a hard time engaging in sex and may feel that their vagina clamps up or that it tightens every time they try to have mm -hmm. sex, also known as vaginismus. Mm -hmm. That is something that you should bring up with your doctor. You should not feel, you should not um, have those type of experiences and think that, and, and, and that should not be a normal experience for you, not being able to engage in sex and not being able to enjoy sex. So that might be something related to trauma and you might need to do therapy and see a sex therapist, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But that's something that you can definitely bring up with your doctor. And then also if you're having any, the other important thing about knowing your anatomy is that you can then explain to your doctor, okay, I'm having pain on my, in the, in my vagina, like not on the outside, on the inside, you know, like you could say mm -hmm. I'm burning when I pee and when the pee comes out of my urethra not when the pee touches my vulva like you you can use the right words because that helps us figure yeah. out what we're worried about am i worried that you have a urinary tract infection or am i worried that you have a yeast infection or am i worried that you have herpes and have like a lesion where the when the urine touches it it burns like it's mm -hmm. it's being able to use the right words is important so that's why um knowing your anatomy and knowing your body is important for that kind of thing and then when it comes to like discussing pleasure with your doctor, um, it's everyone, I think the other thing too is people's definition of pleasure is very narrow sometimes. And they're like, oh, penis in the vagina. And it's like, there's other ways that people experience pleasure and yes. exploring those different things is important, but also making sure that you have partner, a partner or partners that you feel comfortable exploring those things with and also exploring it with yourself. So it's kind of hard to talk to your doctor about it if you haven't even tried or explored your own pleasure and things that make you feel good. Yes. So that's an important first step is to say, okay, you know what? I tried this, I tried that, I tried this, I tried that. And even though I did all those things, I'm still, there's still something wrong, right? And the mind-body connection is real. If you're suffering from anxiety or depression or whatever, it could be related to that as well. So understanding who you you know what works for you understanding your body understanding your own pleasure and then feeling empowered to talk to your doctor and say listen last time the last couple of times i had sex it was not great like it was very painful i don't know if there's like something that you can look at in there or if you have any recommendations but something not right you yeah. know yeah absolutely <laughs> so that's what i recommend and you have to bring it up because they're not going to ask you they're literally legit or not gonna ask. Yeah.
Absolutely. Um, and so like one thing that I do, like I always try to um, look for medical professionals who have like some type of public health background, like if I can, you know, see because I'm like, okay, maybe you have like a more holistic mm-hmm. view on top of like looking for someone who is um, black or, you know, has had some explicit experience in sexual health. Um, so yes, definitely those things. Um, That's a good tip. I never, I never thought of that. Yes. A lot, a lot of the way I view the world is because of my background in public health. Yes, absolutely. So like all of my, all of my OBGYNs in the last, um, yeah, in between me living in Atlanta and then moving back to North Carolina and then now here in DC, um, they all like have a MPH or some type mm-hmm. of public health background. Um, so that is like something that is really important for me, for sure. Um, and then also, um, I love what you said, like, you have to bring it up and like, tell them and like, be honest with them. And I just think that that's a really um, important point to hone in on, because like, sometimes we get scared, like, oh, we don't want to tell the doctor this, but like nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10, they don't heard something before, like they don't heard this before, or something even more extreme or crazy. So like, go ahead and just spill your tea. <laughs> yep. Yep. And if you talk to your doctor about something like that and you get a bad response, you need a new doctor. Yes. But if your doctor doesn't know or they're not comfortable with something, number one, they either need to learn it or they need to refer you. Yes. That's it. There's nothing that's off limits. Yes. If you go to your doctor and you say X, Y, and Z and you, get, you feel judged and you don't feel like they are taking your concern seriously, find another doctor. Or if you say that straight up to them, is there someone you can refer me to, a a specialist who can help me with this problem? Mm -hmm. Period. There's so many doctors who will say stuff like, oh, I don't do PrEP. I don't do LGBTQ care. What? You can't choose. Right. You don't get to choose. You went into medicine. Your role and your job is to serve people. You don't get to choose. When you're serving a population, you don't get to choose. You either decide that you're going to learn it and you're going to man up or woman up and learn what you need to learn to be able to provide this service, or you are going to refer to someone who does. You can't do, you can't do that. That's my biggest pet peeve is when people say stuff like that. Oh, I don't do that. Excuse me? <laughs> when COVID came out, y'all was COVID experts in five yes. minutes. Yes. Don't yes. get me started. Don't get me started. Y'all better learn. <laughs> right. I love that. Read them. Read them. Listen, <laughs> I'm telling these medical professionals about themselves. I'm like, I can't be like this. Yes. Um, and I just, uh, I really appreciate that because, you know, like just learning about global health, like America is the only place really where we treat doctors like this, like where <laughs> doctors are just like allowed to like be high and mighty, even if they will pass on certain health topics. Um, so it's like, uh, you know, that's so annoying and it's not right, but yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit and um, talk about birth control. So we know that despite not be, uh, wanting to become pregnant, many people and people who can become pregnant um, 
who are sexually active do not use birth control because of side effects. Um, you know, like I've had a similar story with that, like just my birth control experience, it just really hasn't been great. I've tried a lot of different things and it's just like, uh, you know, nothing is really, I'm not able to navigate um, the side effects as well as I would want to, um, or like the, the effect of the side effects is like, um, it overweighs like the risk of becoming pregnant. Um, you know, just in my opinion, like with my body. Um, so what advice would you give to women who have had um, and people who have had traumatic experiences with birth control, but want to continue to effectively and healthily prevent pregnancy? Yeah, so this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about like reproductive justice and understanding history um, and what has happened to lead us to where we're at now. So the medical system has a really terrible history of, um, of trying to prevent pregnancy in undesirable populations, quote unquote. Um, so people of color, black people, Hispanics, people who are disabled, um, et cetera, the list goes on. So lots of different birth control methods have been experimented on, experimented in communities of color, um, even though they have really terrible side effects like blood clots, infertility, infection, things like that. So if you guys have the chance, you should Google the Dicon Shield. Um, that was the first IUD, one of the first IUDs that came out and it looks literally like a razor and it was inserted into people's uterus. And the way that it worked is that it caused, created a harsh environment in the uterus so that you, you know, getting pregnant was very um, difficult, but it also caused infertility in a lot of women. So reproductive health technology has evolved a lot since then, but people don't forget right we will never forget that that great great aunt who had a blood clot and died mm -hmm. because she was on birth control or mm -hmm. who had the iud or whatever so i think like the conversations i have around birth control i always start with that and ground myself in that and understand that people have their reservations about birth control rightfully so because it had been pushed on communities of color tested on communities of color, protected mm -hmm. communities of color first, and then now has advanced to a place where they're, it's a lot safer, but at the, you know, the detriment of people of color and, and black women. So I always start there. Now, the thing with birth control is it's different for everybody. Um, lots and lots of research and data show that the, the side effects of birth control is minimal. Um, some birth control will have more side effects than others. So like the birth control pill, which is one of the most common ones that people use, has probably the most side effects um, out of all of the birth controls. But the side effects are still very mild and very, uh, are very well, it's very well tolerated by a lot of people. But at the end of the day, you know, I always tell my patients, the data shows that you don't gain weight when you use you know, birth control, there's no difference between people who use it and who don't. But I can't tell you that you didn't gain weight while you were on the birth control pill. That's mm -hmm. your body, right? Like I can't turn around and tell you that you didn't gain weight. On average, people don't gain weight, but 
you know, who am I to say that you didn't with that method, you know? So mm -hmm. I always tell people, the most important thing you could do is track your symptoms. A lot of times people will start a method and they can't tell if it's the method that's causing these symptoms or something else. So the best thing you could do is track your symptoms and feel, feel empowered to switch to something else. If you're on the pill and you're like, oh, I can't remember to take it every day. I'm having headaches. I feel terrible. Switch. Don't feel like you got to stick to it. A lot of times people are like, oh, but Dr. Ramsey like counseled me on it and I feel bad. Don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. If it's not working for you, you let me know and we can switch to something else or you don't have to be on anything at all. Yes. Right? You don't have to be on birth control. If you're like, this is not working for me. I don't like it. You don't have to be on anything. So I think there's, um, and especially for teenagers, what I find is that people have a hard time having these conversations because they want to prevent pregnancy so bad in these in young people and adolescents. But we have to give people reproductive autonomy. If you are a 19 year old and you want to get pregnant, that is your business. You are entitled to, to have that right. Mm -hmm. It is not up to me to decide, oh, you're too young to have a baby. Mm -hmm. That's not my decision. That's your decision. Mm -hmm. So I'm at the point now where I, when I counsel, I tell people about all the different options. Here are the different ones that you can choose from. Here are the common side effects that can happen. At any point, you could switch to a different one if this method isn't working for you. Don't feel like you are locked into this. Even with the IUD and the next one on, um, the one that goes in the arm, if you get those methods and they last for three to five years, however many years, that doesn't mean you have to keep it for that long. If you have it for two weeks and you're like, this is not working, take it out your doctor should take it out there shouldn't be this whole song and dance about like are you sure are you sure you want to keep it blah, blah, blah. if you're having side effects you can manage the side effects but if you want it out i'm taking it out period that's it you have the the right to choose what you want to do to your body so that's the first thing i think that people need to understand your reservations about birth control your concerns about birth, birth control are completely warranted because of the history yeah second of all you have the option to not be on birth control, be on birth control, switch to whatever birth control method you want to at any time. That is your right because it's your body. And if you have a doctor who won't allow you to exercise that right, you need a new doctor. Like that's, that's just period. And the other thing is I would say is if you had a bad experience with, with a particular birth control method, don't give up. There's many different ones, especially when it comes to the pill. There's like 50 million different pills mm -hmm. so and each pill has a different combination of estrogen and progesterone different doses different there's, there's just so many different ones so if you tried one and you're like oh that was horrible don't feel like you can't try a different one and switch to a different one and it's important to have a doctor who can help you switch to different methods so having yeah. a UIN or like for teens having an adolescent doctor who can help you figure out which method works best for you. And there's some that work better for some things than others. So like if you have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, there are certain birth control methods that work better because they block some of the um, hormones that cause like hair growth and acne. There are some of those, some, there's some birth control methods that work better for that than other ones. So it's really, it really comes down to figuring out what works for your body um, and understanding that birth control is not perfect. There are lots, there's, you know, lots of options, but they're not all ideal, right? They just came out mm -hmm. with a male birth control a couple of days ago, right? We mm -hmm. saw in the news that they have male birth control. Mm -hmm. One one option, right? But they have all these options for us and none of them are great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
so it's like we you know it's one of those things that is continuing to evolve and continuing to grow and change but it by no means is perfect so I also I also counsel a lot of people on different methods such as like the fertility awareness method where you track your periods um, if your periods are predictable you track your periods and you mm-hmm. look to see at what window that you're fertile and that you could be ovulating and you avoid sex during that time period so mm-hmm. a lot of people use that method you can measure your temperature it all comes down to how how um how uh diligent you can be because people will track their temperature every day and when you have an increase in your temperature that's around the time that you're ovulating so during that window period you're probably fertile so you can use the combination mm-hmm. of those things some people check their cervical mucus once again when you're about to ovulate your cervical mucus becomes thin so that way the sperm if it you know can travel through the cervix and get to the egg easily so your cervical mucus actually changes so it's that's why it's important to understand your body and to have this information so that way you can use other methods to help prevent pregnancy besides Mm -hmm. just birth control if that is something that is not working for you or that you don't like Um, and everyone you know I always tell my patients you don't have to be on birth control if you don't want it you don't have to right? You cannot have sex. You can use a condom. You can do whatever. The, the, and a lot, there's, I'm going to get a lot of controversy for this, but the withdrawal method works for some people. It does. Yes. It's, it is a method. People use it as a method. You can't be like, oh, it's not effective. People use it, right? It's not as effective as other methods, but it is right. a method that but some people is. use. We can't ignore that, right? Mm-hmm. So what we can say is this is how you can do it safer. Make sure you're both tested so that you don't, you know, contract STIs, blah, blah, blah. But people use that method. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be skilled <laughs> in using that method. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not foolproof. You could definitely, there's definitely sperm sometimes in pre-cum and other things. But mm-hmm. if you're having sex, if you're doing both tracking your period and having sex and during a window period when you're not fertile, you know, doing multiple methods, then it, it probably is mm-hmm. effective, you know, but people don't want to talk about that. That's the truth. That's the truth. Thank you so, so much for that. Um, you're so real and so honest, and I just appreciate that, uh, which is why we had you on here. Um, and I, something that you really said that's like sticking with me personally is just like the the tracking your symptoms piece, because like the biggest um, impact for me with birth control was my mental health. Um, but, you know, I, I really don't, I can't say that it was exclusively the birth control, but I noticed it most during that time. But we've also been in a pandemic and, yeah. you know, like I'm going through like adulthood changes with yeah. like um, family dynamics and friend dynamics and all type of things like that, you know, like changes in my occupation and my life goals and all these things that, you know, I think about constantly. So I can't, you know, just attribute that exclusively to the birth control. I can't say that the birth control, um, you know, didn't have an impact on those things either. So, yeah. um, Yeah. And I had a patient, she told me straight up, she was like, I was on the depot, shot and I stopped it because I thought it made me gain weight and then I stopped the depot and I still gain weight <laughs> she was like I don't think it was the depot <laughs> she was like she was like, I gotta admit it like and you know like I've had so many people will be like I gained weight while I was on birth control and I'm like oh, tell me about your diet and they're like well yesterday I had McDonald's and then, mm-hmm. then I had Wendy's and then I went to Taco Bell and I'm like think that your diet might be contributing to the weight gain mm-hmm. you know and I had another patient same thing she had an explanation and she was like 
yeah, like I just feel like it's causing me like a lot of mood symptoms and like I just feel like I'm depressed because of the next one on. And then I start asking her more questions and she has a lot of stuff going on. And I'm like, do you think it's the next one on or do you think it's the fact that your boyfriend is locked up and in jail? And like, yeah. what I mean? I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then hit you. <laughs> like, I think that maybe that's more related to the symptoms mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, so I, that's why I tell people track, track your symptoms because then you'll see like, oh, you know what? Actually, it maybe not, maybe wasn't the birth control because people will pin stuff on the birth control. And I'm like, but let's look at the whole picture. Yeah. Right? yeah the whole picture and like i said if you want it out i'm taking it out if you want to take that out of the equation then we could do that but let's look at everything yeah and a lot of times people will blame it on the birth control but they're not in therapy they're not eating clean they're not doing whatever you know they're not there's all these other pieces that they're not addressing and Mm -hmm. people you know pin it on the birth control but haven't addressed the other stuff that's going on in their life so yeah and then they don't, and they don't have like medical providers who will be honest with them and tell them that, um, you know, or they don't even feel comfortable enough to like bring up those other factors um, yeah. with people in general, let alone their, um, their healthcare providers. So yeah. Yep. And like, I, I always tell people, everybody gets therapy. All my patients, you come in, your knee hurt. I'm like, so you have a therapist? listen i don't play i'm like i literally look at my teenagers and i'm like y'all understand that it's a pandemic y'all went through a pandemic Mm -hmm. trying to navigate becoming an adult or being a teenager during this time on top of like all the other drama and stress that you have in your life between all of that you need a therapist we all need one we all need a therapist you know so everybody i don't care how good you're doing i'm like therapist Mhm. Mhm. Yes. Okay. So my next question, um we talked about a little a little earlier about anti-racism in medicine. What advice could you give to um adults who are learning or returning to um cultural practices like using neem oil for birth control or like doing yoni steams, natural vulva washes or spiritual baths or um, different type of fertility practices or treatments. What advice could you give those people um, like who are returning to those practices while also like navigating Western medicine in our society? Yeah, I'm gonna keep it a hundred. I do not recommend those things. And I understand that people are trying to get back to their roots and mm-hmm. back to cultural practices and things like that. But a lot of times people are scammers. They're telling you that your vagina should smell like flowers and it does not need to smell like flowers. It does not. You don't need to put flowers in your vagina. Mm-hmm. Like that is not necessary. And honestly, a lot of these practices, some of these practices are actually causing you more harm than good. And so I think that there's a way to, for us to embrace our culture and embrace these practices without taking it too far and going to, you know, another, you know, going to another level where we end up having more complications and more issues. Um, so I think the best thing you could do is bring it up with your practitioner, with your doctor or your healthcare provider and say, hey, like, look at this cream that I want to use or this ointment or this whatever. 
and your healthcare provider can look at it and say, you know what, this has this ingredient, that ingredient. For instance, I work in Washington Heights in DC. I mean, I'm in New York and I take care of a lot of patients who are from the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. And in other countries, you have access to so many products without a prescription. You could just buy it off the shelf. And I've had patients who have used these concoctions of herbs and antibiotics, antifungal and blah, 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 mm -hmm. medicines, all creams, all mixed into one. And then they come to see me and their vagina's on fire. <laughs> it's yeah. like, because you're using, the thing we have to remember is your body knows what it's doing. Your vagina is a perfect balance of form of, um, of bacteria and yeast and all these different creatures that are living in harmony. And anytime you introduce different products, harsh products and other things to that area, it can throw off that balance. And even when the balance is thrown off, there are ways that we can test to see exactly what is off and then help you fix it. But if you just blatant, like, it's like you're throwing like a whole barrage of things at it and you don't really know what you're treating. You don't know what you're trying to fix. Yeah. And you can then cause more imbalance, right? So if you have a yeast infection and then you take some, you know, you're using some ointment or some cream or some steam. Now you don't have a yeast infection anymore, but now you have bacterial vaginosis. Now you have a smell and you're like, I don't understand why it smells. Mm -hmm. And you treat the smell. Now you have a yeast infection. You're just going back and forth. It's just between. Yeah. So that's why it's, you know, it's one of those things where I just, I don't recommend it. And anytime I look at some of these like Yoni steaming Instagrams and these organizations that are, you know, these, these businesses that are pushing for women to have their vagina smell like roses. I'm like, that is, you are preying on people and preying on the stigma that we've created around mm -hmm. the, 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 the human body and the natural normal functions that the human body does. Right. That's like, if somebody's like, oh, eat, eat these flowers so that your poop can smell good. No, your poop is poop. Yeah. It smells the way it smells. Mm -hmm. It's waste. That's mm -hmm. his job. It's supposed to be that way. The same thing with the vagina. There's this obsession with making the vagina something, making it smell good, making it look good, all these things. It's mm -hmm. just leave it alone. <laughs> just leave it alone. And if there's something wrong with it, go see your go see a healthcare provider or do your research and learn your body, right? So that way you're like, hmm, it's a little itchy on the outside, but my discharge is normal. Maybe I just have a little bit of a yeast on it yeast you know infection on the outside like maybe just the skin is irritated so i'm gonna get an ointment and try that at the pharmacy try that or if you use neem oil or other any other you know tea tree oil other things like that try mix it with a little bit of olive oil or some other carrier oil and try that you know like whatever home remedies you have yes you can but you have to it has to be an educated decision you can't just be like i'm gonna just throw this stuff at my vulva and vagina and hope for the best mm -hmm. because that's how you end up having issues and i have patients who have used nair um they have nair for the bikini area but she used nair for the legs on the bikini area and she literally said my vagina was on fire like oh, my, I, my whole vulva was red and she was like i had to sit in the bath for 30 minutes because it was so painful mm. so you just have to if you're gonna use certain products, do your research, mm -hmm. know what it is you're trying to treat or what you're trying to fix, understand the different things that could be going wrong with your body. So, you know, if you're having discharge and you're sexually active, you could have an STI, right? 
no yoni steaming gonna fix that. You need an antibiotic. Yes. Right? You need a medication that is targeted specifically to treat that bacteria that is causing you to have that that inflammation and that discharge. So I think people are not making informed decisions around these things. They're using products that people are telling them are good for them, but need to understand what is this actually treating, right? What is this actually doing? Steaming could be helpful, right? Because it's helping to bring circulation and blood to the area. But do you need like all the other stuff in there? Maybe not. So there's like, there's a, there's a happy medium. There's a balance. So I would say people just need to do more research. Don't trust, don't blatantly, the same way you don't blatantly trust doctors, don't blatantly trust you, uh, somebody who's telling you to steam your, your yoni. Yeah. To check, fact check. And people will say stuff like, oh, detoxify. What does that mean? What am I detoxifying? <laughs> it's toxic? You, it's toxic? Right. Have you measured the toxins in my vagina? Right. So you're detoxifying something that's not toxic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay started people say <laughs> i've seen people say stuff like this detoxifies your liver your liver's job is to detoxify yes. How is detoxifying something that detoxifies correct that correct. just don't worse together <laughs> you know you have to you have to do your research don't trust trust no one don't trust your doctor <laughs> like make sure you read and understand what they're doing and what they're treating because we also don't get it right 100 percent of the time and don't trust these random people selling you stuff on instagram check yeah. them correct people will trust them before they trust a trained physician to 10 years of schooling but you need to check everybody that's true absolute facts that's it. <laughs> i trust no one i'd be like what's the name of that medication what's the mm-hmm. name? I look everything up before i go to my doctor i already know what tests i want i'm like these are the tests i want <laughs> i was between this and this but i think it's probably this so if mm-hmm. we could test for, for both that'd be great <laughs> yes yeah i come with a plan mm-hmm. and, and it's it, like it's so interesting to think about all the other areas of our lives where we do that um but like not in regard to health and not in regard to sexual health um and reproductive health um because yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes yes but it's important that we talk about it like i'm i'm so grateful when my patients come to clinic and ask me questions about these different, like I had one patient, she asked me about boric acid um, and boric acid can be helpful in treating bacteria vaginosis, mm-hmm. but you can't just be blatantly using boric acid. What if you have something else that's not bacteria vaginosis and how you know, you can't even, t- mm-hmm. you can't even test yourself to know. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where I'm like, it's better. You just come to the clinic. We can just test it. We can know for sure. We can go from there. Yeah. And once you know your body and you're like, okay, I haven't had sex in a year. The last time I got tested was three months ago. Everything was negative. I'm not having any itching, any yeast. I have a smell. This is definitely bacterial vaginosis. I'm going to use boric acid. Then we're good. But if you just like, something ain't right, just want to throw some boric acid in there. Like, no, <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. That's the problem. Like people, they don't, they, they're not like analyzing the whole situation you have to like look at the whole picture you have to know yourself you have to know your sexual health know your sexual health information um and go from there so absolutely Absolutely. i'm very passionate about that obviously (laughs) (laughs) i know some people gonna listen on this podcast and be like but i love yoni steaming i'm like i'm sorry (laughs) sorry y'all but that's just the truth like you just just take the flowers out and just do the steam. That's fine. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. the extra flowers, oils, things like that. Like that's just going to cause irritation. So. 
Well, we we appreciate you for um, giving us the real teas. We really do. Okay, so um, we are winding down, and this is like one of my last questions. Um, but I want to say, because we do have some teasers who are men. So how can men and mask identifying folks be supportive to their partners and to women um, and people with vulvas in their lives in regard to sexual and reproductive health? Once again, be quiet. Yes. <laughs> Just listen. You know, don't mansplain me about my period and my experiences with my cramps and my this and my that. Just listen sometimes we just need to vent you know and i think the other thing and specifically when it comes to reproductive justice and fighting for the the fighting for reproductive rights for women like men need to be in the conversation too you know and i have this conversation all the time with specifically with black men where they'll say things like oh but we need to like fight to like make changes for the black community first and then we'll address the needs of like mm -hmm. the lgbtq population and women and this and that and it's like why we gotta wait mm -hmm. you telling us we gotta quote unquote wait our turn reproductive rights and reproductive justice is a problem for for you as well yeah. right if a black woman is not able to get access to abortion and has a child that they are not equipped or ready to have that impacts the black community, right? If a black woman wants to get birth control and doesn't have access to birth control, that impacts the black community. You can't tell me I need to wait my turn, right? I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation with black men. I'm talking to the black mm -hmm. men out there. It's not appropriate. You need to understand and care about this reproductive justice and reproductive rights for women as well, right? Yes. Because that directly impacts the black community our lack of access to providers who care, infant mortality rates, maternal mortality rates, all of that impacts the black community. You should care about that. Absolutely. You can't just be like, oh, that's, we'll, we'll talk about that later, right? Trans individuals being murdered and having ha being attacked, violence in the, in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about that. We need to talk about that. We're not gonna wait. We can't wait. The, the, the needs of the most vulnerable populations are just as important as these other things that you're putting, you know, at the top of the list, that's important reparations, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So what I will say is men need to care about reproductive justice and reproductive rights just as much as, as women do, because it impacts the black community and communities of colors and, and marginalized communities. So y'all better learn. Yes. So yes. number one, be quiet, <laughs> listen, Number two, learn. And number three, validate. You need to validate us. You need to say, you know what? I hear what you're telling me about your experience. I'm mm -hmm. so sorry that that's happening to you. What can I do to help? Right? That's what, you, that's what we need from y'all. We don't need y'all listening to Kevin Samuels talking about how you a high value man mm -hmm. and all of this stuff mm -hmm. about how like we need to cook and clean and pay the bills and this and that and wear heels while we do it. No, no, that's that ain't it. That ain't it. Yeah. That is not it. I need you. Who, I'm 
whoever my partner is, they got to be on the front lines with me. Mm-hmm. I need to be showing you these diagrams. Like, look at this anatomy image that I drew. And you're like, nah, it's babe. That's cute. I need that. <laughs> yes. I need that. I yes. Need understand. You know what I'm saying? It cannot be, it can't be like, oh, that's not important. That doesn't matter to me. It does. It matters mm-hmm. to you because this is how we build our community. This is how we protect our community. Reproductive rights is a, a is something that is has been used the book um killing a black body does a really good job of explaining this and how reproductive um reproductive tactics have been used throughout history to be able to control communities of color Uh it is not by accident yeah so they need to know they need to read they need to learn learn all right i'm done (laughs) (laughs) gems 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 yes uh Ah, thank you so much for that. Where people need to just rest on that for a minute. Yes, listen, <laughs> learn. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Thank you so, 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 so much um, for everything that you've shared with us. Um, this was just even more than I could have imagined. Um, and I'm just, I can't wait to like everybody else hears it. Um, so yes, um, if, is there anything that you like want to like leave as your parting words with us? Um, any last thoughts um, that you would like for the teasers to continue to turn their wheels on? Yeah, I guess the last thing I would want to say is feel to fight for your, for your rights. Um, a lot of times medicine, society, everyone is telling us that, you know, our reproductive rights don't matter, um, that our reproductive rights and sexuality and things don't matter, um, and that we you know, shouldn't talk about these things. But I encourage everyone to own their sexuality, own the history that has happened, and um, advocate for your needs in every aspect of your life and every aspect of your sexuality with your partner, with your doctor, with your girlfriends, when you're having that conversation, you know, at brunch, like we need, we have to advocate for ourselves Mm -hmm. and we can't be afraid to do it. So often we have, people have been told, don't talk about that, don't bring that up. Like, you know, that's not an appropriate place to talk. No, like this, now's the time. Now is the time. If you have a concern about your body, you have a concern about a birth control method you're on, you have a concern about, testing that you need done, I encourage you all to advocate for yourselves with your partner, with your doctor. Now is the time. Like we can't sit back and just be passive about this anymore because people will not give you what it is that you deserve. So we need to ask for what we need. And in order to do that, we need to have the knowledge and the background and understand what's happening to our bodies and have the language and the tools to be able to communicate with our partners and with our um, healthcare providers. So anything, the main thing I want people to leave this podcast feeling empowered to be able to advocate for themselves. That is all I ever want and dream for. Yes, yes. Oh, well, I definitely feel like um, I've learned so much and in that knowledge, I definitely feel empowered and I feel validated um, just by hearing and learning from a Black woman um, who like 
is, you know, knows my experiences um, and knows so much more um, about these things than I do. So I'm just really grateful. And I know that the teases are as well. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Tasha. And can you let everyone know where they can find you and stay connected with you and continue to learn from you? Yes. So my website is www.gorgeous, doc.com so gorgeous w so it's gorgeousdoc.com and then my personal instagram where i like do all my fashion and like do, go to brunch and stuff like that is <laughs> gorgeous doc so same thing g-o-r-j-u-s-d-o-c and then for my sexual health education and other um, materials and resources you can follow me at gorgeous sex ed so j-o-r-j-u-s underscore sex ed. Um, the other thing I want to plug is that I have free images available for download on my website. So I create sexual health images. So I also draw, <laughs> which is another nice. random skill that I have. <laughs> but so I've drawn some sexual health, like sexual health education images that are available for free download. And I'm creating new ones that will be available for purchase. But at this point, there are free um, free images on my website for download. You just have to subscribe and then you get the passcode for the discount and then you can download them for free. So it's great for teachers, other health educators, mm -hmm. other people who are um, running Instagram accounts and social media accounts. Um, so I couldn't find any people of color. So I created it. Yes. So. Yes. Like we always got to do. <laughs> create, the, create it for ourselves. Um, yeah. Read a blueprint. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we're, we're just so grateful that um, like we have you to, to do that. Um, just amazing. So yes, um, thank you so much again and again. And we can't wait to continue to connect with you and learn from you. Um, and the teasers, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey teasers, thank you so much for tuning into that episode of your favorite sexuality education and storytelling podcast, Birds, Bees, and Teas. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Anchor, make sure that you follow, like, and subscribe to the podcast so that you can become an official teaser. You know what else makes you an official teaser? Following us on all of our social media platforms at Birds, Bees, Tees, at Birds, Bees, Tees on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. As always, we appreciate you sharing this podcast with your friends, your families, and continuing the conversations that we start here. And if you ever feel inclined to donate to the podcast, hit us up on Cash App at dollar sign Birds, Bees, Tees. Thank you, teasers.